Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learn something and enjoy listening. Today's episode is a little different to normal. I'm chatting to the wonderful Antonio about his personal experience after having been hospitalised and diagnosed with schizophrenia and emotionally unstable personality disorder. Despite this podcast being focused on psych research, I do feel it's super important that the conversation also integrates personal experience from service users. As a disclaimer, this chat does contain reference to suicidal ideation, restraint and some difficult subjects. And if you struggle with these topics, I would advise considering listening to this at another time. Similarly, if you find this content upsetting, please follow the links in the conversation to charities that may be able to support with overwhelming emotions. Either way, I hope you're able to find this conversation valuable. Welcome Antonio, it's really really great to have you on today and I'm very grateful for your time. I would be interested to start by hearing whether you felt you had insight at the time that you weren't well. I had no insight so I was very ignorant like if I didn't go through that experience I'd probably be you know in that circle of people unfortunately that are ignorant to mental health and don't accept it and so on and that's the the honest truth but if I look back on it now, I see it more like a blessing because has my mental health actually caused me more problems or has it actually just brought me more opportunities? Am I going to look at it like something that, I don't know, I guess ruined my life or something that actually just shaped my life? If people didn't go through hardship, then people will never, ever have empathy, you know, and the people don't have understanding. So I think sometimes and within reason, these things are necessary. And the experience I went through is wasn't the easiest like I it, I first started getting my symptoms when I was about 15 15 doing my GCSEs yeah then when I got into my first year of college is when I ended up hospitalized and I stayed there for two years coming out 18 you know having to restart life again missed out on probably as everyone says the best times of my teens I wouldn't even second guess I wouldn't like take it back I wouldn't regret anything as I always tell people I would the past is the past is no longer my concern and you know the future isn't mine to see but in the present moment I'm happy where I am and I guess that's why it's called a present and to go into more detail about my experience it started at 15 during my GCSEs it was stress and stress and stress being one of the top achievers in my high school a black top achiever in my high school I had a lot of indirect pressure from different avenues you know my parents my teachers my peers and that to me while it, sh- while it should have been encouragement, it felt like boulders on my back sort of thing, you know, so I couldn't, I couldn't actually keep up straight. I, I was just holding myself as long as I could until I actually felt. So that carried on, you know, the stress and the GCSEs, I started suffering pseudo seizures because of the stress, started getting really paranoid. I'd think that people were out for me, that people were out to get me, that people were watching me, talking about me. Along with that, I'd hear voices as well. In, in line with, with that paranoid feeling, you know, the voices would tell me that I had to do something about 
what I was hearing or accordingly hearing or, or you know, believing at the time. And that if I, if I didn't do something, then it would take it out of my insecurities. You know, it'd make me feel little, make me feel like, you know, everyone will always walk over me and push me around kind of thing. But I really had to challenge those voices. And although it was my mind I was battling with every day, it was also my mind that was putting logic and reasoning into things that were happening. You know, if I'm hearing voices telling me that they're laughing at me, well, are they even making eye contact with me? You know, are they, are they even in my, in my direction? So I had to really just put clues together and really just analyze the situation. You know, it's, it's easy to see one thing in an environment and then forget what's going on around that environment at the same time. So yeah, I just had to, I keep, I had to keep challenging the voices. Before I came, I came to that coping strategy, my first year of college, I guess I just, just with the suicide and everything, I decided, you know what, that border was too heavy on my back and it was time that I was going to just drop. So I made a plan, an action to um, attempt to take my life. At the time I was at, at CAMS Child Adolescent Mental Health Service and I had, I had actually called them actually on the day that I was, because I had left my house with a, with the idea that, you know, I'd attend college so that people didn't think anything of my routine was odd or different. And I was like, something bad's going to happen. My head of head of year at the time had, has pulled me out of the classroom, psychology lesson as well, and said to me, we just want to have a conversation with you. Once I've gone into my room, she told me we've gotten this call from Cam. The brother's coming to pick you up. They want you to go to their office. So now we've gone to the, to the office. And in that moment, I'm hearing my psychiatrist talk to me, saying, what's going on? What's happening? We've had this call. But it's, it was almost like not tunnel vision, but tunnel hearing, because I could only hear the voices over her, her voice. So the voices, and it, was, and it was almost like I was repeating what they were saying. So I just kept answering, you've ruined everything, you've ruined everything, you've ruined everything. As I've come to the point where, you know, I've pulled out the knife that I, that I, was, that I was going to use. My brothers tackled me to the ground. They've pressed a panic alarm to bring ambulance and police. My brothers grabbed the knife and, and thrown it. Police showed up. And I guess that was the worst part of the situation. I guess probably even the most traumatic. And, you know, I think in that sense, a lot of people think that my frustration with police comes from just naturally being black, I guess. But it's more than that because at the time where I was distressed and needing help, they took it more like a crime and actually took me to a police cell before I was offered any hospital help. So that's where my experience with police is. Then from there to hospital, from hospital to a mental health institution and two years there and then back out, restarting life again to here where I am now. So you were hospitalised for two years. That's quite a long time. That's a huge chunk of your life. Was that the first time you were speaking to a psychiatrist in that setting? Or were you already receiving medication or therapy within the community teams? I was only receiving therapy, if I remember correctly. It's unfortunate, you know, because I actually think CAMS was one of the best services for me. But because they were such at the beginning of my journey, it was also difficult for them. And yes, so, so when I was there, it was more just a lot of assessments, trying to find out what's going on, what's the issue and so on and so on. And the whole attempt on my life, I guess, is what threw them off because they weren't really expecting it. I don't think I was taking medication then at the time because there was no diagnosis then. I had CBT then. 
but then in hospital, I started taking medication and I also continued therapy. And what did the doctor tell you your diagnosis was? Did they tell you straight away or did you have to wait a while? They would tell me, but it was very confusing because, you know, I'd hear one diagnosis from one doctor, then another diagnosis from one doctor, and then this kind of thing. And it was never clear. It only became clear, actually, about three years ago because I asked for records of all my files that were noted. And then that's where I saw things like transient, um, polymorphic, I think it is, acute, and all these things that were attached to my diagnosis of schizophrenia until a final report said undifferentiated schizophrenia and emotionally unstable personality disorder. But for a long time, I kept asking, you know, can someone just tell me what my diagnosis means? What actually is my diagnosis? Because I hear this, then I hear this. And I'm just like, it's confusing. You know, I like, for me, I'm someone that doesn't like to go through life unsure. So I like to ask why, like, even, even if you're going to give me a million, a million pounds, maybe I won't ask why as, as prominently, but I still want to know why you're giving it to me. You know, it's just not just take it and go sort of thing. So yeah, I, I was always asking you, can someone tell me, you know, because I think it's easier to recover if you understand what's going on, not just what you're told, but actually understand what's going on. So I've always asked, 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 but, and this is where my psychology degree came from. Because it was just like, if no one's going to explain it to me, then I'm just going to dig into my own accord and, and find out myself, you know what I mean? So, yeah, like I said, only last three years, I guess, I actually found out, like, definitely. And do you have a good memory from the time? Do you remember what life was like while you were hospitalised? And obviously, I know you've told me about the actual experience that led to being hospitalised, but compared to what people that you know tell you about yourself then do they match up it's a good question no one's ever actually thought of it like that but I have by myself yeah because you know what when I do think about that time and even when I am telling it to people you know wherever it may be I realize that I leave out huge chunks of information because you know maybe I'll speak to my brother or a friend and they'll remind me and I'll be like wow yeah I don't I didn't even remember you know that part of it so yeah, there are, I guess, gaps within that time where I don't remember or, you know, it doesn't come straight to mind that this had happened or this had happened. But generally, it was it was just like a, a structure sort of thing. Like, you know, you'd wake up 8 a.m., breakfast, then, you know, you'd maybe have some sort of group activity or group therapy, either music, art, or I can't remember, or dance, I think it was, yeah. Or sometimes you even have like yoga and Pilates and that kind of stuff. Then you have lunch, then you have your one to one CBT, then your, I guess, your free time. And you also have education, which I always tell people wasn't actually education, it was just a room with books and some computers. Then you leave dinner, then have your visiting and on the phone hours. Then I guess some leisure time as well, just, you know, free, free room, quite kind of, well, free room is the wrong word to use when you're on section, but just do what you want. And then you also had bedtime. And it was funny because I actually had a rule with bedtime. You know, if, if, you, if you didn't go to bed at bedtime, you wouldn't be allowed on the weekly outing just because I guess, you know, it come under your behavior sort of thing. When you first get in, you have two to one. So, you know, you have, two people by your side everywhere you go, going to sleep, they're still watching you. One thing I remind 
people in that is that don't take away that there were still good people there that I met. And, you know, there was a lot of people there as patients who were actually able to put aside their issues to better my issues sort of thing. And this is why I always tell people it's not always that people can't pour out of an empty cup. It's sometimes you can't see what they're pouring. A lot of people done that for me because they could see that I actually wanted to recover, you know. Not that they didn't want to recover, but I guess I had a more mental illness to recover. Whereas I guess when people have been there so long, they're just like, you know what, it is what it is kind of thing. This is just how it's going to be sort of thing, you know. So, yeah, I met some great people that I don't even, right today, know many of where they are. Maybe that one or two, but yeah. So there were good times, there were good times. Over that two years, because as you say, that is a long time, did your mental health go up and down? Did you have more traumatic times throughout that? Were you ever put in isolation? Yeah, so I definitely wasn't stable over the um, two years time frame. Um, in terms of medication, there was a lot of switch ups. So that's one thing, you know, I didn't just... They didn't find the first medication to be the perfect medication. They didn't find the second medication to be the perfect, not even the third. So it's constant experimenting and weighing up the benefits with the risk because, you know, you've got to see the side effects as well and stuff. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a clear-cut, smooth path. And even in, 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 in the hostel, it's a bit more so that you're not just taking one medication, you're not just taking two. You know, where in the community I was on antidepressant, antipsychotic, in hostel I'm on antipsychotics and antidepressants I'm on PRNs you know and all these sort of things and yeah it was a lot to take morning midday and and evening and I, I think well, at one point it got to that stage where the the person doing the drug rounds he says to me he said look stop stop getting used to these medications because they can become really addictive and then you'll rely on them and think that without them you can't be good and that always stuck in my head that always stuck in my head and yes even the side effects on this is it was really enough to think like yo like I, I don't really want to be on medication forever and it, it changes your character as well your personality and all these things you know like there's nothing about me that I'm not happy about maybe at the time I was struggling but nothing about me I'm not happy about so yeah yeah no I yeah I was put in isolation quite a few times actually probably a regular in isolation at the first few moments being in, in hostel. It was a bit weird, you know, because obviously you have like one person or two people on each part, of each limb of yours, like, you know, your arms, your legs, and they put you down and then they'll tranquilize you as well. Because you're in section, it means that you can't think or make decisions for yourself, right? So they didn't have to get consent or anything like that. So, you know, they just do it as they felt necessary. And then they, yeah, they put you in this room for six hours while I guess the tranquilizer took effect and this room was like quite spacious but it was cold you know and it had just that blue thin mat that you get when you used to be in physical education and like they just watch you through this through the through the, through the window panel of, of the door and in my one they talk to you through, through speakers if they want to give you water they put it like through a hole or anything like that and yeah I mean I was there quite a few times and sometimes it was weird because, you know, you know, the way they show it in, in, in movies, you know, when 
your jo- your your drowsy and they're carrying you and you like your your eye your vision's blurry but you can kind of see what's going on you're being dragged somewhere and that there was one experience where I remember it like that where I could just you know blurred vision and being dragged to my bed and then waking up in bed I'm thinking what happened what happened last time but they didn't tell you they put it into a different sort of phrasing but obviously with so many frequencies you got to you got used to what was actually going on but yes anytime yeah like they press this like alarm and you know about six eight people would just come in pick you up and you know restrain you and so on and as I said it wasn't the best experience but again I'm not going to sit there and you know I guess ponder on it but it has caused some trauma because I've you know whenever I'm sort of getting angry you know like when your friends being good friends they you know they try to hold you back when you're angry just so you calm yourself that holding me back kind of thing makes me feel worse because it reminds me of that situation yeah. so yeah it's, it's yeah so it, there is that that element of trauma i keep coming back to that comment about the lack of insight but clearly as i'm speaking to you you did have insight about your experience and of course maybe you won't remember everything but mm you clearly even in psychotic episodes could remember you were aware of what was going on and I think in that situation staff often assume that actually that service user is so unwell that they won't remember it but clearly it can actually impact you whether or not and more broadly was it scary to be in hospital or did it feel helpful for you because you wanted to get better both i'd say both because i had enough time to experience both that's why i'd say that i mean at the beginning yeah definitely i'd say it was 100 percent scary scary and lonely like you know you didn't know how long you're gonna be there first of all it's not like you know you've got a set release or you know here's this is how long you've been and you you know your section will tell you okay maybe section 228 days section three six months but that can always be repeated so it's not anything definitive that you know this is when you're or this is how long you're going to be here sort of thing it's very dependent on you and you try to find ways around it like you know oh yeah I'll just stay in my room time will pass but every ward round that just makes you look worse and, and not as if not as if you're actually getting better because you're not engaging so yeah there was yeah a lot of it and even to the point where after being in isolation so many times I was told that you know I'd have to, I'd have to be sent to a high secure unit when I heard about high security, I said, listen, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. I'm not going high security unit, no way. That's how scared I was, do you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, but, again, as you start to get into the routine of things and, you know, you start to understand, when you live somewhere for so long, you start to know the ins and outs and you start to get to know how things run and, you know, just naturally how, it, how it's going to operate and sort of how you're going to get by. So that's when... For me, my mentality changed and it was more about recovery than reaction or frustration. And like I said, it's, it's also lonely as well. And it's unfortunate, it's just there's no one to blame. But because at the time you're you're adolescent, right? But most of your friends are under 18, but no one under 18 can come and see you. Sometimes, you know, your friends will tell you, yeah, they're going to come visit you or they're going to call. And the only thing you can do at that, those three hours of time where you are allowed visitors of a phone call is wait patiently or anxiously and when you know it's at that time where no more calls or visitors can come you're just there disappointed like this whole time you just spent here you know expecting and yeah but I mean in all these things 
that I went through, my best skill in it is flipping the switch. So in times where, you know, like I said, visiting and people didn't show up, I learned to expect less because expectation is the mother of disappointment, you know. In times where I was getting restrained, I, I learned, you know what, Ang anger is actually a very wasted emotion. I don't need to be angry. You know, or, or I mean, I accept that sometimes I will get angry, but I don't need to always, you know, have a reaction to things. Not everyone deserves that energy and not everything deserves that energy. And all these things, you know, I just learned to switch it rather than let it drag me or hold me back. So, yeah, that's why I say it, it kind of did help us all. There are definitely life lessons there. You mentioned briefly at the beginning of that being sectioned, and I was wondering for people that watch or listen to this, could you explain the difference between them? And on the back of that, what section were you put under? You know, did it change over the time? Because that also links with being having visitors and leaving as well, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. There's so many. I, I only came to realise that as well. At the time, I only knew about section two, which is detained for 28 days minimum. And then section three was six months minimum but then there were, the, there were these other sections where you could be for 72 hours i think those are assessment ones the process of section is you know your consultant applies for a section and then you'll get two independent consultants come to review to see if you really need to be sectioned but it's not really to see if you need to be reviewed it's more like they've come in with the decision already that you are going to be sectioned it's just you know i guess formality kind of thing and then, yeah, they give you your paper, you know, that explains what your section is and what it means. And it only gets reviewed, as I said, after that amount of time. So I started off on a section two, 28 days, and then section three. Towards the end of the two years is when I was actually an involuntary patient. So, you know, I was having my 24-hour leaves, two-day leave overnight and kind of stuff. But the way I was sectioned, so it was extended because I wanted to try discharge myself. So that's the thing. Like, if you try to discharge yourself, it's not you're discharging yourself. It's okay. You think you're going to discharge yourself, but that's when they apply for section because you know you're either a, a, a danger to your, a risk to yourself or to society. And like you said, the visiting and activities all changes when you're on section compared to involuntary. All changes because you well. You can't have visitors in your room, first of all, but you can't actually go to the visiting room downstairs. So, you know, you've got to make do somewhere in that corridor. And it's awkward, you know, sitting with your family or friends trying to have a conversation. There's other people around. And if you go into a room that isn't obviously a bedroom, like say the, the, the communal room on that corridor, then obviously someone has to be there supervising. You've got to be searched. They've got to be searched. All these kind of things, yeah. I wanted yeah. to kind of ask whether you think that your race had any impact in any of this. I mean, so for example, black people are four times more likely to be detained and sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Do you think that for you that had anything to do with it, you know, the length of your treatment and or whether you could appeal getting out? I, I didn't know about tri tribunals until I left. I, that's one thing. Didn't know about tribunals until I left. So no, I wasn't even aware of that. Yeah, I think, you know what? From the beginning, yeah, 
so like I said with the police, then in the hostel, kind of, yeah, but I also take it with a pinch of salt because some of the people that were in charge of my care or aware of my care were also of the same race. You know, so my psychologist who would report to my consultant was of the same race. Some of the HCAs were of the same race. Some of the therapists were of the same race. Obviously, probably the minority, but okay, yeah, race does come into it. But I don't think race is the ultimate deciding factor in it. It does play a part, but I don't think it's a, it's a complete deciding factor because, as I said, the attitude you give will either match or go against whatever assumption people already have of, of your race. I said at the beginning, I was quite, you know, frustrated, reckless and sort of impulsive. So that to them was like ticking their assumptions sort of thing. But once I got into, you know, a proper sort of mindset, everything that your input, output matches. So everything kind of changed, you know. A lot of them were actually really supportive of me. I used to have a, a RMN that would sit with me and write some spoken spoken poetry with me. Like just individually, he'd write some spoken spoken poetry with me. You know, I had a the manager of the of, of the office, so he would, he would sit me down sometimes and have conversation. He's like, you know, I really like you. I really like your attitude. You know, you've got a lot to live for. You you need to work on recovering. You know, so many I, I had extra privileges in that sense and praises because it was like I said, it's more what you're giving out. You know that that race thing. I don't take away from. It. I'm not saying you know. It's not important. It's not a player factor. It does. What I'm specifically saying is that it doesn't play a complete deciding factor because you can definitely change that with your behavior. You know, that race thing is an image. It's it's not anything more. It's an image. So people are looking at it until they speak to you. And it happens every time, you know, whether it's my mental health or my race. Once I start speaking, people are like, oh, you know, I'm actually surprised being judged is a survival instinct. It's only nature. It's something we grew up having to do. It only gets bad when you use that judgment to neglect people. But even so, in that sense, you still can change that with your behaviour. So to sum up, yeah, it did play a factor, but it wasn't an ultimate factor because I could still change that once I decided to really put my mind into recovery. Well, that's really good to hear. I mean, it was very profound what you just said. So I think it's just, it seems like this whole very traumatic experience has taught you so much more than it's taken from you. And I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you was how you're impacted by it now. Have those voices gone? Do they ever come back? You know, how does that impact you now? And when I ask you about that, I'm referring specifically to the diagnosis of schizophrenia rather than the personality disorder. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of impact, it definitely, as it, as it should, has left some you know, flaws and sort of irregularities just because of, you know, I guess what's happened, like in, in almost in the sense of PTSD, if you know what I mean, like, but as I said, rightly so, you know, if it didn't, I'd, I'd be quite surprised. So, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes relationships, intimate or not intimate ones, are difficult. Commitment sometimes is difficult. Spaces sometimes is difficult. You know, anxiety is a problem. 
and all these this is all to do with schizophrenia as well because you know sometimes it's just like if I get into myself if I get myself into this really bad place am I going to be able to pull myself out you know it's all these kind of ruminations and stuff but as you said I've learned more than it's taken for me so in any sort of situation where I do think like that I always have something to counter it with you know worrying does nothing for my happiness if it's happening it's happening I can't change it it's not happening I shouldn't even be thinking of it yet yeah so it's impacted in both ways and with regards to voices yeah I do still hear voices but I manage those voices now those voices don't manage me and those voices sometimes actually come as a reminder of how far I've come so you know always flipping that switch constantly always flipping that switch constantly as I said I think it's brought me more opportunities and you know what a lot more understanding from other people before being young and schizophrenic there was three types of stereotypes and stigmas that I was holding on, on myself now I, I probably scream it I probably put it everywhere young black because I've got no shame towards it because there shouldn't be any shame any shame towards it, it should be more like a light you know yeah imagine that if the other people you know still have, haven't come out of that that tunnel that don't have someone like me to show them forget the judgments trust me because when you when you speak out it's a better feeling than keeping it private like to my surprise i always thought all my friends were going to judge me were going to judge me when i first started doing this speaking out but the amount of friendships that i've created from it is mind-blowing it's absolutely yeah shell-shocked because you know even in the club people trying to talk to me about it you know where somewhere where i'm just trying to have a good time people trying to talk to me about mental health or mental illness you know till this day where anyone has seen my conversations on mental illness i've not once re- said received a negative comment where you know and touch wood where they've said why would you talk about such thing so on so on you know it's always been like wow you're actually what you're doing is amazing you know, I have this as well, and I've never been able to speak to someone. And oh, you know what? You're doing so well, and you know, you're probably helping changing the, the generation for, for you know the younger generation and all these things. So it's like sometimes it's hard to feel down because you're getting so much praise, and it's like this is for you. But the biggest thing, I think, in all of this, is acknowledgement. Acknowledgement that not every day is going to be sunshine, but in any day that there isn't sunshine there is but it's just covered by clouds that will pass and that's all i think you are remarkable you're utterly inspirational and you're doing so much you know even with the kind of whole eastenders storyline i just think you're phenomenal and there still is a stigma that schizophrenia is you know this dangerous and aggressive condition that takes over people's lives and they can't live with but actually it's not the truth and I just think it's incredible you know that you can sit there and say yeah I still get voices but I'm in charge now and I think it's a huge amount of responsibility that you have to live with that but it's just a testament to your strength so I am utterly inspired by you and I'm really grateful that you were willing to talk about it today and on that note is there one piece of advice to someone suffering with their mental health, whether that is an acute mental illness or whether that is just, you know, a low level anxiety, what piece of advice would you give them? I would just say, 
rely more on progress than conclusion because every day you're still here, that's progress. Eventually the results will come. I love it. Thank you so much for that. And thank you again for your time. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode with Antonio. Once again, if you do struggle with any of these topics, please do check out the information in the description that will be able to signpost you to charities that may be able to support. I will be back next time with another conversation with a leading expert in their field. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you're not already, please do follow at Psych Summaries on Instagram and check out my Patreon link if you would consider supporting this work. Thanks again and I will see you next time.